What's happening, people? We're back here today with another episode. We've got a very, very special guest in the house. Um, this person is someone who, like, we all kind of want to get to that stage one day in life. Someone who's highly inspirational. Someone who's been able to kind of make something amazing out of their life. Um, and we'd like you to introduce yourself and what you do and who you are. Thank you very much for having me. My name is Simon Squibb. I am. Um, I'm an entrepreneur. I guess these days it's cool to call yourself a serial entrepreneur. Yeah. Just one step away from a serial killer, I guess. But uh, yeah, I, I've uh, started 17 companies from scratch. I've invested in over 66 startups. I guess you can say um, I've got to understand how building a business works. I left school at 15. And I was kicked out of home at the same time. Just a few weeks prior to that, my father passed away. So I had a pretty rough beginning. But I like to think today I have one of the most amazing lives ever. I have a little three-year-old boy who I absolutely adore. I get to spend a lot of time with him at the right moment in life. I get to spend a lot of time with him. A wonderful wife. And now these days I'm, uh, I'm able to spend a lot of time helping other people fulfill their purpose in life and their dreams. So yeah, investing in people helping people start businesses, helping those that have started a business, make sure they never feel alone doing it. So so that's what I'm doing today. So before we kind of get into and delve deep into kind of what, what you do, what would you say your definition of entrepreneur is? Because when I've asked people in the past, it's, it's all been different. So. Yeah, my, my view is entrepreneurship is basically about freedom. Yeah. It's about the ability to decide what you work on, who you work with, when you work, and that doesn't mean to say you you know some people's misunderstanding about when you work means oh I won't work Monday and Tuesday and I'll work Friday night Friday afternoon maybe I've worked I've never worked so hard as than being an entrepreneur it is the hardest job you can do I think other than being a parent yeah. I think I think it's such a hard job but I, I can honestly say for me entrepreneurship is all about mainly freedom yeah. it's about that dream of being able to follow what I love to to do and not having someone tell me to do something else that I don't necessarily believe in. And do you think that there should be or there is um, a monetary value or a monetary reward attached to that? Or could it just be simply just about freedom, just doing when you want, when you can? And yep. Well, freedom and sometimes money can go hand in hand, can't yep. they? I mean, having the freedom to do what you want, in a way you need the financial ability to do that too, not just the entrepreneurial spirit. But when I was younger, and I, I just needed to pay the bills and eat. I remember, you know, literally not eating for four days. That that would teach you a lot of things, you know. And I think when I when I when I was able to earn some money and actually then eat, that was success for me. I, I never thought about you know buying fancy cars or any of all that stuff or having lots of money in the bank. I just wanted to literally be able to buy food. So, so another question: um, Do you think that so you said kind of buying some food and being able to eat was kind of your def definition of success at the time? Do you think as you got older and as you kind of progressed and um, kind of embarked on your entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial journey that your your definition of success or what or what success meant to you kind of changed along the way? 100%, yeah. of course, yeah. I mean, when I was younger, literally, it was just survival. Mm -hmm. And as I had a bit of success, I started to 
care more about purpose. The word purpose was never taught to me at school. I never really had a conversation with anyone, including my parents, around what is their purpose, what is my purpose. And that, that word really crept into my life really in late 20s when I'd had some success in business and I had the choice to do different things. It's like, why am I doing these things? I can do them. There's a market gap maybe, but why am I doing it? Not just what am I doing and how am I doing it? And as I started to ask myself this question around purpose more, it started to define the things that I would work on. And the most important trick I learned in being an entrepreneur, saying no, when when not to do something, even if it is a good market opportunity, even if it could be something that makes money, does it follow my moral code? Does it follow the ethics that I have? Does it follow the passion that I have? And if it doesn't, I say no. And I think that came later in my career. I think definitely now, for example, I don't even think about money, which is not something when I was building businesses in the past, of course, I thought about money. I thought about how I could make money from building a company. But now I don't think that way. Now I think purely about how can I help the people that I'm working with without any personal financial gain. Just to kind of backtrack and give some context. So how did you, so what, so you said you started about 13, 17 businesses. What was your first business and what happened with that one? So, well, basically at, at 15 years old, I, um, I, I was sitting there thinking I've got to prove my mother wrong. She kicked me out and said yeah. I'd be coming, running back to her and I was proving her wrong that I wouldn't. And uh, uh, So I, I just sat there thinking, what am I going to do? And then I remember looking out the window in this crappy room I'd rented in this crappy house and seeing across the road a really nice house with a really messy garden. And I thought to myself simply, I'm not sure what I'm going to do, but maybe that guy across the road there, he would like his garden taken care of and I can make a bit of extra money on it. So then I went across the road, knocked on the door and said, hi, my name's Simon Squibb, your garden's really messy, would you like me to take care of it? And he said, sure, that's, that would be great actually, I've been meaning to get someone in to take care because I haven't got time, And how much will you charge? And I said, I just made up a price there on the spot, I said, £300, uh, take care of it each month? And he said, sure. And as I walked away with that kind of order in my hand, I thought to myself, he can't be the only one. So yeah. then I went and knocked on over 100 houses that day and 12 people said exactly the same, yes, Please take care of my garden. And then when I got home with all these orders, I suddenly thought to myself, crap, I don't have any equipment. How am I going to do all those gardens? So then I had the brainwave to go back the following day with a crap contract kind of thing written out on a bit of paper that I and said, hey, this is what I'm going to do for you, but I need a deposit from you to do it, oh, a 50% yeah. deposit. And to my surprise, I have no you know, company registered. I have no brochure, no business card. They gave me the cash. Mm. All 12 people gave me the deposit money. And with that deposit money, the Monday I went and bought all the equipment I needed. And then as I started to do the work the following week, I realized I was not capable of doing all these gardens. I just didn't have the physical ability to do it all. So I then hired a few people to help me do it. And that's literally how I built up the business. These days, what a lot of people do uh, is they say, oh, I have an idea for a gardening company. And then they say, well, but I need to raise money to get yeah. the equipment. And then yeah. I need to design a fancy logo and a brochure. And, and then I need to do a website. And four or five months from now, maybe, maybe not, they've got a gardening company and they begin to go out there and try and win some Science, business yeah. but i i just literally learned the easiest way to get business is knock on a door and ask and and then you know if you haven't got the money you you try to figure out a way for the company to generate the cash you need to pay for what you need to make that business work yeah, that was my first business oh that's amazing so from there like how long did that last for and what did you kind of follow up there because now you got your feet wet you're understanding entrepreneurship and how to build a business what kind of followed and where was 
where would you say the turning point and your success actually came, if you know what I mean? Yeah, it's, um, I've written a book about it that's going to be released in November. And, yeah. and I, even myself, I have to remember very carefully what actually happened because sometimes, you know, it's, it's, I'm now 40 plus. So, you know, this is uh, a long time ago, 25 years plus. So, so sometimes you're remembering the nuances of how it all played out. Mm-hmm. But at the beginning, my business uh, worked. And then as I hired people, I, I realized how, what a rookie I was. I made a lot of mistakes. Yeah. I, I spent money on the wrong equipment. I bought equipment instead of hired equipment. I did a lot of silly things. I actually got a bad partner involved in the business who, who ended up, frankly, causing a lot of problems with mm-hmm. customers, stealing money, stuff like that. So things that, you know, I learned so much. Basically, I, I did a real-life MBA, yeah. I sometimes tell people. Mm-hmm. And I got, I got paid to do it. But, of course, along the way, I made a lot of mistakes. The business didn't do so well. And I um, started off really well, as I just described, but as it got bigger, it just, the problems of the business, the foundation, I had no idea how to build. No one taught me entrepreneurship in school. No one explained to me cash flow management. No one explained to me insurance. No one explained to me employment contracts, partnership agreements. None of these things I knew. So I made a lot of mistakes. And then um, I'm going to date myself a little bit here, but uh, then I I had to get a job to support the business. So I got a part-time job in a hotel and in that hotel I was I was doing it part-time and I realized that the receptionist was busy telling people that she had no rooms available in the hotel because the hotel was really well marketed and I thought to myself that doesn't sound right you have someone ringing up the hotel how much work has it been to get that phone call to the hotel this is pre-internet people used to ring up to book a room for people listening in the old days (laughs) and so people ring up and and then these people on reception were saying sorry we're full up tonight we've got no rooms and turning them away so i just said to the receptionist hey why don't you instead of turning them away take their details and tell them we'll find another room for them somewhere else and so this turned into a business called accommodation express and this was the beginnings of I, I think learning from my previous company mistakes and starting to build something quite scalable. And so that I built could have been hotels.com or yeah, one of these big portals or yeah. you know lastminute.com. Yeah. But it was the beginnings of that travel industry uh, movement and people would then ring the hotel, not be disappointed by the hotel just telling them, so we haven't got a room. We'd ring around all the hotels in the area and quite often some of the hotels would have a lot of rooms still left over. They weren't as marketing it themselves yeah. as well as the hotel that I was working in part-time. So so basically I then took those inquiries and placed them into the other hotels and we got a 15% cut on that. So this is where, you know, again, you, I didn't need any money to, to start the business. Yeah. It was just about, a lot of people say they can't start a business because they don't have money. Nearly... Um, all the businesses I started in the early years were not really with lots of money. They were just seeing a way of taking care of customers that other people weren't taking care of and then lev- leveraging the relationships of those customers to get the money you need. So so the hotel would take the inquiry. They'd pay t- to get that inquiry to happen, not me. Yeah. And then that inquiry, instead of being disappointed by the hotel and getting turned away, we'd help them find a room elsewhere. And then the hotel that we placed the booking with would give us 15% of that booking. Yeah. So that that's that the kind of my one of my second ventures. I did a few things in between, you know, you, you, you name it. I, I tried to do it entrepreneurially from, from selling lemonade uh, in, you know, at, at fairs and, and creating, trying to create products and brands. None of it worked, but each of it was a learning curve. Yeah, for sure. And then I got offered an opportunity when I was 23 years old to go to Hong Kong uh, on a contract. And so I took the opportunity to go to Hong Kong and this is where my life really changed. And I realized, and I was so grateful um, that I never got into debt because I never got a car loan when all my friends were getting fancy cars. I ignored it. And because I had businesses, I was always about trying to 
any extra money I had was trying to go into the businesses that I had. So I didn't get a car loan. Some of my friends got a mortgage uh, and got stuck because they had debt, mortgages of debt, and they were told to buy a house, they got a mortgage, or, or they got credit cards to come through the door, and they, they thought they'd leverage them, and they, but they couldn't suddenly do what I was about to do, which was quit everything and go move to a completely different country and have a whole new experience. And I was always so grateful I never got into debt. And so at 23 years old, I packed up my suitcase, and I went to Hong Kong, and it blew my mind. When I got there, I realized how big the world was yeah. and the opportunity ahead. And every, and from that moment, my uh, my entrepreneurial hustle in England just times to 100. Mm. You know, the opportunities were just so much bigger and the world was so much bigger from, from where I'd come from. And suddenly I was in this major, major city. I started a creative agency called Fluid, which became the largest independent creative agency in the region. And in 2016, I sold that company to PwC for more money than I'll ever need. Oh, wow. wow. What type of services did you offer like, in your creative agency? We, um, we expanded it, uh, but initially we, we were just simply saying to companies, we will help you come up with good marketing ideas. Okay. And we will then help you, once you like that marketing idea, execute it. So I met a really talented creative when I arrived in Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. And she just used to design brands and, and creative campaigns for people. She was a typical creative. She totally undervalued her skill set. Yeah. So again, this wasn't a huge amount of money I put into this business initially. I just saw this talented person who was not charging enough for what they were doing. Mm-hmm. So I became kind of their agent initially yeah. and just said, look, let me handle the business conversation. You do the execution because you're so good at that. But let me negotiate on the pricing and the um, work execution. And very quickly, this is you know early two thousands. Um, I realised that there was a big opportunity to not only design brands and ad campaigns for people, but build digital products. Mm. And so in 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 China, digital revolution dot com had just happened. So all the dot com companies had come and gone. There was a huge gap where yeah. people didn't believe in digital dot com yeah. in particular and saw it as a big hole but we picked up the mantle and started offering digital services so we were like a traditional agency which for those that know the industry people like Ogilvy, Leo Burnett and those types of brands but we started also offering digital services and that's when we really took off because no one was combining marketing branding and digital mm. most were either doing advertising or branding but none of them really covered digital as well so that's what we started to do and that's what we did amazing um you said you was handling basically the business um conversations when you basically become an agent when you became quote-unquote agent right um when i've spoke to creatives in the past they always had difficulty um creating or even just coming up with a price so how did you come up with the price have that conversation to tell someone this is their price and just basically for the for the price to stick it's a good question and it's a complicated answer i think there's stages in a business so when we were in the early days i also didn't really care about price yeah i cared about building case studies up mm-hmm. i wanted to prove that we could move the needle for businesses so i remember when we we started working with cnn I really didn't care about how much we charged. I cared about having a case study to show that we could help CNN grow their market share in Asia. If we did that and we did, then we would be able to name our price. And I always focused on outcomes, not production. Mm -hmm. So in other words, we would say, right, we're going to help you um, get more 
viewership in hotels in Asia. And if we manage to get you a million more viewers, we will charge X. If we don't, we'll charge Y. And so try to link price to outcome. And so I learned in my early businesses not to sell time, but to buy time. People don't make money selling time. And that's where they go wrong, even in agency world, because they'll say, we will work eight hours on this and charge you, therefore, an eight-hour fee. What we used to say was, we will help you deliver a movable um, amount of uh, an additional amount of revenue will help you create additional amount of revenue we'll move the needle and we want a slice of that additional creation so that could you know we wanted to have an unlimited upside along with the brand or client that we were working with so we would always try to negotiate a fee based on success it wasn't always possible. Some brands, like we worked with Estee Lauder, for example, were the first company they ever worked with outside their US internal team to help them move into China. And so they were not going to give us a percentage of their sales, which is one of the ways to do it. So we still we did a fixed fee, but that was fine because to me that was a case study to show other, other people. And then as the business progressed, the way we really built value was starting to charge zero for our services. Yeah which for a lot of people was quite a, a weird concept. So we, people would come to us and they'd say, right, this is what we want you to do. This is what we need your help with. And we'd say, right, we're going to charge you nothing to do that. Plus, I'm going to give you £50,000. So as a client relationship, suddenly the dyma- dynamic completely changes. And we say, and we want in return five, what, up to 10% in your company. As in shares? Or exactly. Oh, okay. So that was the, 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 the kind of towards the end of the business model, how we really scaled up. Because instead of just taking a service fee or charging by the hour, we bought into our clients' businesses. And that's how I was able to invest in 66 startups. Because we, we were offering value add. We were able to bring extra firepower to the table. And in Asia, I was one of the first companies in the world to actually bring corporate relationships to the table for startups. So, for example, we had a client called AIA, they actually sponsor Spurs football team, but not a lot of people actually understand who they are. But they are the uh, one of the Asia's largest life insurance companies. They've got 98 million monthly paying customers, and they were my client. So what we used to say to startups that we work with, if they were in the healthcare industry, we will get you access to AIA's 98 million monthly paying customers. If you've got a product that will help their customers live longer, healthier, happier lives, that company through our relationship will be happy to promote you because they want their customers to live longer. From a cynical perspective, they pay their premiums longer. They pay out less. So if you had a healthcare startup, then we were able to facilitate a relationship with you and the brand. This is way more valuable than, you know, a service fee based kind of a deal so you know for a startup to get 98 million customers is is well, i don't know how much money you'd have to spend on facebook to get that sort of number but you know but having a relationship via us with these brands is is really what took us to a whole new level that's amazing and i just really want to kind of emphasize on the whole value add up front and really focusing on value rather than just the the price because like you said and that's just a great example of what happens when you focus on value because the money always follows as well people kind of start a business or start an idea and kind of start looking for where's the money gonna come but if you're just really giving upfront value that that leads to more money than you ever imagine coming in as well so that's really amazing to hear um a question i have is kind of like in terms of so for example my perception of 
for example, selling your company for a huge price is like you need a, a fat company and stuff like that. But there's also smaller companies that are able to amount a great amount of money through it as well. So just in terms of context, how big or small was your agency? How was it kind of able to like create such huge impact depending on your numbers? And what was it like building a team big or small to get to that level of success as well? Good questions there. I think one thing I'll highlight my experience has been it's much easier to run a big company than a small company. Okay. A lot of people are scared to make their companies big. They think mm-hmm. it's a headache. Yeah. Actually, it's harder to run a small company. So I've, I've run companies all different sizes and built companies all different sizes. My personal belief is that if you've got a team of four or five, that's actually a really nice lifestyle business. I like having a team of four or five. My present business is a team of five. So, you know, I like that number. That's, that's easy. It's like a family. It's easily managed. Mm-hmm. Now, in our case, a bit like you guys, we have a podcast show. So, you know, we don't need a lot of people, but um, hopefully we can reach a lot of people with, yeah. with a small amount of, yeah. of, of, of people. But I've also run 300-man company, and I, and I found that the good thing about that size is that you can, have, you can afford to hire really good middle management, mm-hmm. people that can take a lot of the strain from you. But I've also run 40, 50-man companies. This is quite painful mm-hmm. because you, you, you have size and volume and quite a lot going on, but you don't necessarily have the budgets to hire senior, senior people to take care of some of the, the heavy lifting. So it can become quite stressful. So I always tell people pushing through to the bigger company is actually the better way. With, with PwC, the partnership we did in the, the, the sale that happened there, the key to the sale of my company, I always tell people, was I didn't want to sell. You get so much more value from your business if you don't want to sell. Yeah. Why, why is that? Because I was going to go into kind of why you didn't want to sell. Is that because you had the kind of like an emotional attachment to the business? Because when I found just people when they just that have just started businesses, whether it's like small, well, I know people that have started small companies anyway, um, but they are very reluctant to even just get outside help, and it's because I found that they have an emotional attachment to to their business. So is that? Why or no? Um, I know what you were talking about, though, yeah. and it's true. I, I I always tell people again when I'm talking to to people that are looking to replicate what I've done. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I did that I think was quite smart was I brought someone in smarter than me to run the business. Mm-hmm. So I I brought in I, I failed the first time I did it, but I brought in second time around a, a CEO who who knew more than me about the business that I had built. And they, they were an industry veteran. Yeah. So entrepreneurs, we tend to be, there are exceptions to this, but we tend to be really good at taking a business from zero to one. Then one to 10, let's say 10 being IPO, yeah. not necessarily an entrepreneur's forte. I, yeah. I personally don't like a lot of detail. I don't like uh, the idea of doing an IPO. just kind of freaks me out. I don't want yeah. to do all the paperwork. Yeah. Um, yeah. But there are, there are, you know, I can do it. But the point I'm trying to ultimately make is there are better people than me to do these things. Yeah. So the best thing I did was build the company up and then bring in someone senior to actually run the business. So that that was the first big uh, important step, which you, you're quite right. A lot of people don't take because they're scared to let go. They're yeah. scared to bring other people in. There was other things I wanted to do. So it was quite easy for me to let go. As I said earlier, I started investing in businesses and I wanted to be more on the helping the, the young companies become yeah. big companies. And I was less interested, certainly a decade into that business, helping the big corporates that may or may not have succeeded without us. Mm. You know, whereas the startups definitely with our involvement, I felt like we definitely felt that we could make a difference. So I moved personally to being more involved in helping these startups, which freed um, the space up 
for someone else to come in and run the core business that I had originally built. Yeah. But I had to let go, and that yeah. was an emotional journey, but yeah. so important. The second element was I wasn't emotionally tied to the business that I didn't want to sell it. It was more like it was underpinning everything else that I was doing. Mm. So the agency not only paid me a lot of money every month without me having to work it because I was smart enough to bring someone else in to run it. So I wasn't working it. It was generating monthly income and it was also providing me with facilities to help things like my startups. So I'd have access to 40 amazing graphic designers, for example, who would yeah. work at a weekend to help one of my startups get out out the door. You know, why would I give up that resource? I, you know, if I've got income coming in and, I've, and, I, and I'm not some person, I was thinking, I've always been happy to keep my cost down. I don't need to own a boat. I've got a friend who owns a boat. That's mm. enough. Yeah. You know, <laughs> you don't, you know though I was never interested in materialistic things, but I do like the idea of having a, a corporate group kind of set, set up that would, could support any, any particular initiative that we might do. Yeah. So I didn't need to sell it. I think that it's, I, I didn't mind selling it. It wasn't I was emotionally tied to not selling it. I didn't need to sell it. And I think that really helps in a negotiation. And when you can start negotiating this kind of that you need me, PwC, more than I need you, you need to generate new revenue from your Fortune 500 clients because you're doing auditing and that business is getting slowly eaten by the machines. You know, they needed to, to, to create new revenue models. And actually, I was one of the few agencies at scale that was available in the markets they wanted to be in. Yeah. So there was a, a point there where you know we we could negotiate a little harder. Um, don't get me wrong; these PwC negotiated a very good deal, but but ultimately, I think also the the, the trick I learned was we never talked about our turnover. Mm. We never talked about what we were generating. We always talked about what it would look like when we partnered with PwC. So when we took our formula for helping these brands and we went to the Fortune 500 clients that PwC had already, yeah. then. Those are the numbers that we would work off when working on the valuation. Yeah. Whereas a lot of people make the mistake of having a conversation about their business and their turnover. Again, a bit like pricing. They look at how many hours it takes them to do something and then price it accordingly. We reversed it and we looked at what difference our business would make to the PwC bottom line and negotiated from that point. Yeah. I've got another question, right? Um, because I've noticed it's definitely in since I've just started working, even in uni, that when people win something, achieve something, there's two types of people. They either relish in that and they celebrate in for like a prolonged period of time or they just say, yep, I got it, what's next? So kind of what so what bucket do you would you say you fall into? I am something in between. Interestingly enough, every single time I had success in any of my businesses, all I ever... I would enjoy it, mm -hmm. but I would always be thinking about how to keep doubling up, doubling up. Yeah, yeah. I, I never took any money out of the business. I always paid myself as little as possible. Mm. And every time I had any spare money, I would hire someone good. Mm. And all I could ever think about was, how can I grow this pie? I never wanted to eat the pie. Mm. Uh, good analogy. So just made that one up. Might have to change <laughs> that. But I, you know, I, I just wanted to grow the, the business. But actually, the PwC sale of my business in 2016... Um, coincidentally collided with another um, exit I had in another uh, business on one of my startup businesses and, and also matched up with the fact that I, my health was starting to deteriorate. I mean, I'd put on about 10 kilos in 10 years. Mm. I wasn't very healthy. I, I felt like my wife and I, we wanted to have kids, but we weren't focusing in on it, you know. So I think at that moment, for some reason, 
that that particular sale and those that particular moment I did take a lot of the table and did what you just said there I took two years off previously when, when we spoke you mentioned kind of how luck played a huge part as well but what would you define as luck because also for me I kind of view as success um, equals preparation plus opportunity which is kind of what people deem as luck what would your definition be as luck and why do you always say you need kind of an element of luck to be successful yeah I, i'll just back up a second and, and and say that i um when i when i like every successful entrepreneur wants to sit down and write a book and tell everybody how brilliant they are yeah. what they did and how they did it and i think if i tell you i was lucky it kind of takes away my power mm-hmm. you know if i say that you know luck was a large reason i was successful there might even be a moment where you're like well if it was all luck you're a lottie winner why do i want to talk to you about business mm-hmm. But I think anyone that's been successful, if they're not honest about it and look at moments in each part of their business that I, for example, won a client just before we went bankrupt, you know, if I hadn't won that client, we would have gone bankrupt. Mm -hmm. Now, you can argue that I worked hard to win that client, but I could have worked hard. I know plenty of people that work exceedingly hard and not successful. So, you know, you this other saying that you hear, which is similar to the one you just said, which is the harder I work, the luckier I get. This is the one that gets thrown around. And it's not true. Mm. And I think part of my mission these days is to get rid of a lot of these sayings in business because they confuse people. Mm -hmm. I actually was more successful when I worked less hard, when I brought someone else in to run my company. So I'm sleeping, they're working. I got luckier. So it wasn't working hard, was it? In fact, you know, the saying is, oh, what you mean is work smart. Well, yeah, I think there is luck, in my view, the dictionary needs updating, and I'm working on that. One um, part of the dictionary, which is correct right now, which is this random luck, and let's call it where you're born, for example, or coronavirus. Mm -hmm. You know, these things are, you know, depending on your perspective, but these are not things you're in control of, Mm -hmm. right? But there should be a second definition of luck in the dictionary, which is a, a, a process in which you can control your luck. And, and I believe there's three ways in which you increase your chances of luck. The first is you've got to have a huge appetite for risk. Yeah. And I have learned to love risk. Yeah. I'm, risk and fear are linked. And fear, to me, is an asset. I don't see fear as something... Most people, when they feel fear, their instinct is to try and stop that fear. Be it, oh, you know, I remember when I was first asked to do public speaking, there was an instant feeling of fear, you know, oh no, why would I put myself under that pressure? What's the point of that? Yeah. And, th- and you could just say, no, I don't want to do it. But I said, yes. And I faced that fear and I leaned in. And, I, you know, and, and, and what I'm trying to say is that fear, in fact, was a gift given to us to help us be stronger mm-hmm. at moments when we need it. So I think fear is a, a fantastic feeling. I crave feeling fear, and therefore I crave risk now. It's, risk is a muscle in your brain, and you've got to build it up. You've got to push the boundaries yeah, of it. Sure. And so, so very important, if you don't take risk, you will not be lucky. Second element of it, in my view, is destination is the easiest way to explain it. A lot of people don't actually know where they're going. Mm. So some people, I will ask them, what, what's your aim? And they'll say, I want to make 20 million pounds. And I tell them, that's the fuel in the car. That's not the destination. Mm. If, you, if, if you've just after the fuel in the car, you probably won't go anywhere. The destination is where you want to end up, what you want to end up to be known as, what you end up wanting to problem to solve. What, where are you going in this car that you've got in? Right? And then if you want to know where you're going, you'll find the fuel by hustle, by borrow, <laughs> by partnering, whatever. You know, if you know your destination, but so many people aren't clear where exactly they want to end up, and therefore they don't get there. And then the third thing 
that increases your luck now i've studied this very carefully is persistence yeah so when i meet a founder and i'm trying to help them grow their business and they ask for investment i tell them to change their job title to chief persistence officer right? that that's, that's the key right you're what you're actually doing is you're saying to people you've got a vision like in my my case we're going to help one million people start a business of their own i remind people in my team and everyone that listens this all the time because that's our destination yeah right and i'm the one that's going to make sure we push through to do it with everyone's help but if i'm not persistent mm -hmm. then then no one else will be and i see it in sales a big part of my personal business growth has always been in sales i think sales is a wonderful thing completely underrated yeah. it feeds families if done well it is a beautiful thing i love sales but it's got a bad reputation yeah, and often does. because people don't persist so the way i view sales is i only sell things i really believe in and if i really believe in it i do not stop until the person i'm selling it to either understands it and says no or says yes and so i have for example um, when i started my agency business i spent our first two weeks of running that business writing down the 50 companies i wanted to work with and i contacted them all that first month of business and said this is what we're doing can we help you some of them took seven, eight years to become clients, but they all eventually became my client. Amazing. And so that's what I mean about persistence. So many people, the average salesperson, and I'm talking good salesperson, will contact someone three times before they'll give up. They say, I emailed them, I left a message, and they're just not interested. Yeah. I always say to people, you've got to contact them at least 50 times. Mm -hmm. And I'm not talking about being rude. And, and bugging people too much. I'm talking about a persistent connection. So we used to uh, leave our company brochure in the offices of our clients, just lying around, you know. We used to pop to all these offices and leave them there. We weren't like knocking on their door saying, hello, we're here again. But we would subtly remind them that we were there. Yeah. You know, things like email marketing, which I know sounds out of date now, but it's not. It's yeah. still just ever so often a little note, like how are you doing or what's going on? Do you need anything? How are you? You know, not necessarily, not necessarily selling anything directly. But persistence is the key. In sales, it's the persistence is the key to being lucky. So you get those three things lined up right. You take risk, you lean into fear, you're persistent, and you know your destination, your chances of luck are much, much, much higher. Yeah. It's not, the nuances of it is too straightforward just to say, you know, opportunity. Because again, sometimes it's not even, I've seen situations where people have been really successful in business. And let's take my case. PwC yeah. buying my business was not my plan. My plan was my business was going to be the number one creative agency in Asia. Right? And we, our main mission was to help ensure that people respected the creative industry, in particular the people that worked in it, because quite often they're treated with disrespect. They're like, can you do that logo for me by tomorrow at 12? Yeah. It's an art form. Mm -hmm. It could take months to do this right. So we were advocates. We protected our, our teams and creative people make people understand that this is a process and you've got to so that mission meant that we hired and, gr and managed to uh, have brilliant people working in our business but that also meant that ultimately our output was better because our output was better we, we got more clients right so and, and none of it was about selling it to PwC at some point in the future and it was pure luck that PwC one of the biggest uh, accounts companies in the world top four in the world decided that they were going to get into the creative industry and diverse their business from just being accounts into other things and it was lucky that we happened to be at that moment when they decided to do that the only large independent agency that they could buy 
right? So I don't care what people say, and I'm not trying to um, reduce the quality of who I am as an entrepreneur, but I'm being real about it. Sure. You know, like you, all you can do is what you're in control of, which, as I say, is the, is the fear leaning into it, the, the risk appetite, the destination, and the persistence. And everything else, there's still an element there, i.e., PwC wants to buy a company and they're willing to pay properly for it. Luck. I was lucky. And I don't think it takes away from my power to share that with people because yeah. I know so many people out there are struggling and they're wondering why they're not making it. They're following what they've heard everyone say. You know, I've been working hard. I work seven days a week. In fact, I would argue that working seven days a week, 18 hours a day, is very bad for your mental health, your physical health. And I would actively tell people not to do it. I have done it. Yeah. So I've been through it. It's not doesn't necessarily mean I have a better company because I do it. In fact, it can often mean people that are looking at me as their boss are thinking, God, I never want that. Mm. I don't want to work seven days a week, 18 hours a day. I don't want to be the boss. And then they're not inspired. Whereas if you, you know, if you are taking it easy, you're enjoying your life, you're having some fun, you're having a holiday. I used to always have a holiday. And I think a lot of people think having a holiday, oh, that's not a good idea. That's when I used to have my most creative ideas. And you come back refreshed. But somehow people think, work hard, work hard, I'll be successful, work hard. That's not true. Yeah, no, that's that's amazing because one thing we were we were speaking about is, for example, just being honest, like getting to a millionaire status where you feel like is it so like to me you sound very not money orientated, more kind of focus on value, passion, purpose, and all these things. But to kind of get to that status, do you have to be this obsessive, aggressive hustler to get there? Like you said, enjoying life, focusing on what you want and kind of knowing how to navigate it because we feel like as young people there's this huge stigma of I have to work super hard and hustle hard in my 20s so in my 30s I can be in that status like from your perspective what would you what would you say because it's so important to kind of break that stigma and get a better understanding because it's all perception right yeah I I mean I I think success to me and I think that's what we're talking about here what is success I think success is simply enjoying your day-to-day it's it's that simple, and I never really thought I was I was like the idea of money. But when you've come from nothing, the idea of being able to buy a nice car, you know, have a nice home, these, these are of course are dreams. But I didn't do things for those things. Yeah. And actually, all I focused on was the here and now. Mm. You know, I, I I tried to live like my dogs. You know, I've got two dogs. I love my dogs because they just live in the now. You know. You, you come home, they're happy. You go out for 10 minutes, you come back, they're happy again, you came back. You know, like just living in that happy moment, that, that now place. And I, and I do think that sometimes we are too busy. Maybe we're looking at social media and seeing what someone else yeah. has got and we want that, you know, instead of just looking at what we have got and working on it, improving our own minds, improving our own lives, improving our own bodies, improving our own opportunity. Mm-hmm. And, and so that, that's what I've tried to do my whole life. And I think that, you know, I was lucky enough, I think a very important thing, in my view, of, of being successful as you get older is having the right partner in life. And so for me, you know, my partner, without doubt, made me a better person. It was the best deal I ever did. And ironically, no contract signed, no terms agreed, you know, no, no negotiations. The best deals I've ever made have had no paperwork involved. You know, and I think that, you know, that, that, that to me was the most important deal I've ever made in my life, my partner. But if you get the right partner as well, they got the same ethos as you, which is work hard, care, be decent, live a good life, enjoy your day to day. In fact, my wife, uh, we worked together day in, day out. She was the creative I mentioned earlier that I spotted and I knew she was talented. I said, let me handle the negotiations for you. And then we built this company called Fluid together. 
and we fell in love by building the business. We worked together every single day for 10 years. And I remember one day she said to me, I, I don't want to do this anymore, Simon. And I was mortified. I was like, what are you talking about? We built this amazing company up. You know, you're, you're like this respected creative, all these people working for you that kind of worship your creative ability. And, you know, we've, we're making money. And, and, but she was very wise and I didn't realize it until a few years later. I, I thought she was giving up. But what she was actually doing, which is really smart, is realizing it was no longer making her happy. Mm. And, and, and she was willing to give up all that power and give up all that fame because she wasn't enjoying the day to day anymore. And it took me a few years to figure out yeah. the same thing, actually, you know, and, and giving up power or giving holding on so tight to what you've already got yeah. is actually what often makes people fail. So so I see it with people that make a little bit of money. They're so obsessed with the little bit of money that they made ironically they suffocate it yeah. waste it lose it they're too scared to lose what they've already got instead of enjoying what they've got and pushing and pushing and pushing ultimately trying to improve your day-to-day -day. that's what makes you happy enjoying your day-to-day -day. and that's what so many people i think don't think enough about they think i know i'll get a house i'll get a mortgage and then that house 25 years from now will be paid off and I think to myself, does that mean you're going to do a job you hate every single day from now to 25 years from now to pay for that house that you think is going to make you happy? Why not just not have that house and do what you love every day? Because I honestly believe that money comes yeah. if you do what you love every day. Right? Sure. It's like the Picasso example, right? He just painted every day. Yeah. yeah, and then one day his paintings worth 150 million. But I think as young people, we need to hear that so much. I think we need to be reminded of yeah. it. I think it has got lost. Social media has a little bit corrupted people in this yeah. regard because they're so busy looking at social media. Half those people showing that stuff on social media aren't actually happy. Yeah. And, it's, and it's really hard for me because I, you know, I've come from nothing. So I, I know what it's like to have nothing. But for people, when I talk to them, when they haven't got any money, if you say to them, money doesn't make you happy, mm. it just doesn't compute because they think it's going to solve all problems. Yeah. And I know for a fact, because I've seen it throughout my whole family, money only makes you happy if you're already happy. Yeah. That's the only time money makes you happy. So if you're not already happy and you get money, it makes it worse. Right? That's when you end up with drug addicts and all sorts of serious problems, mm -hmm. right? Money only makes you happy if you're already happy. So you better make sure you're bloody happy before you get that money. Otherwise yeah. it's only gonna get worse. Mm. Right? And so that that's the thing I think people do need to to realise these days. Yeah. And thank you so much for sharing that story with you and your wife as well. I feel like for some reason, there's this negative perception of you can't mix business with pleasure or mix business with friends or family and stuff like that. But for you to build such an amazing empire with your partners, well, that's really nice to hear as well. It shows that it is possible rather than having this negative perception towards it as well. Well, I think there is two sides to that. Mm. I've, um, I, did do my, I did get my brother involved in my business and it went horribly wrong. Mm. And so um, I think personalities matter when yeah. it comes to these things and the rule I, I i like to throw out there for anyone that is looking to work with their partner what really worked with me and my wife was we actually had different skill sets and we respected each other's skill set yeah. so, so my wife was a creative so she decided everything related to creative who she hired what was it, what was put into the market on the creative side i had an opinion but i never for one second, really had an uh, ultimate decision she yeah. did. On the marketing, branding, even when it comes to selling the company, that was kind of my decision. And she always trusted me and respected me for that. And we never we never crossed paths or crossed swords. Whereas my brother, when I brought him in, we both liked to talk. So, no, that was a problem. <laughs> you yeah. know, and we, we would butt heads a lot because our styles were very different. And so I tried to make him like me and he'd want me to be like him. And so that was a problem. And I think that, yeah, I mean, I... 
I personally still crave today a family feeling in business. Mm. I don't believe in work-life balance. Mm. I believe there's only life. Yeah. And so at different stages, there's a different life. So when I was younger, work was my life. I just was obsessed and I loved it. Now I have a little boy. Now second to me is work, actually. So, But I still love to work. So my son, for example, he comes on my podcast show sometimes. He jumps in and interrupts and it, I like it. Yeah. He's a part of it. Even tonight, he said, enjoy your podcast tonight. He didn't know it was going to be your podcast. He thought it was mine, you know. But he knows and yeah. I like him to be a part of it. It's not like I'm off to the office now. You're never going to know what I do. Yeah. In fact, I wrote my book for my son. Amazing. I wanted yeah, my I knowledge that. for him to be able to read in my own words how yes. I made it, what I learned, because I never had that from my father. My father died when I was 15, so I never got that download from my yeah. father. But, you know, I, I think it's important for people to also realise, you know, life's kind of a wobbly stool. You know, there's no perfect work-life balance. That's the other element to it. Yeah. No, amazing. Um, so, obviously, you're into angel investing, um, and obviously your own podcast so can you just just shed some light on kind of what angel investing is um, I think you mentioned how you got into it already and obviously just talk about your podcast what you aim to do and where the listeners can can find you as well yeah well um the podcast started off in January um, with my the basic simple idea that I've got all this knowledge of being an entrepreneur which I'm going to share with people but I didn't want to be a typical let's call them um, entrepreneur guru that's just standing on a soapbox telling everybody how to do it yeah. right so for example I don't believe in university generally unless you want to go to university to become a doctor yeah. or a lawyer a particular profession I think uh, uh, university is a big trap for people and I worry I know quite a lot of people come out with debt then they have to go work for a company to pay off that debt and they don't ever follow their entrepreneurial opportunity. So I worry about university and I also worry about how it trains people because having spent some time you know, looking at the university system, they often train people to fear risk instead of embrace it. So And it trains entrepreneurship out of people. So I, I, I have that opinion. However, I wanted to have people on that share a different opinion. In, in the hope that we could create a healthy debate where with people with different opinions, this sounds like a crazy idea today, doesn't it? People with different opinions could actually have a civil conversation and figure out what's best for the audience listening. So I now interview the world's most successful entrepreneurs, maybe not the ones you've heard of because I want to interview people that aren't as famous as Elon Musk or, or so on. I, I try to pick people that you might not have heard of that are just as successful. So, for example, I had recently a, a guy on called Simon Long. He built a business called WeLab Banks. They're now the most, they're the largest online bank in the world. They've got 43 million online active customers and they've just launched their own credit card business and there's just f seven years ago this guy used to work in a bank and now he's built the world's largest online bank so you know though those sort of people you might not have heard of him you know of course brands like alibaba are now becoming a bit more famous but people like jack ma people who have really built incredible businesses up that maybe not necessarily have shared their story and those are the people i bring on to the show to explain their lucky moments so that people understand how this luck thing works which we all need right and then how they managed to build their businesses what their insights were and they're, they're sometimes different to mine and I think that's that's awesome and that's why I do the podcast show so I have two parts actually one is Simon Squibb you know sharing what he knows and I have a, a, a business toolbox there on how to raise money, how to start a business with no money, how to market your business, all of these things that I think people need to know to start okay. a business. But also I then bring on these incredible people with their own way of doing it, their own journey. Many of them have actually been to university, telling 
how they did it to people in the hope that that insight and that knowledge will one make sure anyone out there as an entrepreneur never feels alone because I think being an entrepreneur can be very lonely. So you just listen to these stories and realize, oh, they had a cash flow problem too. But now look at them, yeah. you know, or they had their co-founder leave them. But now look at them, you know, because sometimes people think these things only happen to them. Yeah. I want entrepreneurs to not feel alone. And the second part is I want the knowledge to be on the table for people to pick up and use because not a lot of people have got access to some of the people that I've managed to interview because they're busy people. So they don't have time to mentor. They don't have time to coach people one-on-one. So through the podcast, hopefully they get that knowledge and that insight. And that's that's why I'm doing it. I mean, today I, I tend to invest in businesses that have a very deep purpose. So for example, I'm working on a business at the moment that is trying to... Um, replicate i guess the uh, property agency business so you probably know brands like seville's or knight franks or these property agents and when they sell property the money goes into shareholders pocket and it's quite big money when you sell a property my idea is to build a property agency that when they sell property that money goes to solving in fact hopefully eradicating the homelessness crisis so no longer will the profit from selling that house people still get well paid for selling the house but all the profit which is huge money, especially in London, especially in this, you know, some parts of London, the house prices are crazy. Talking 50, 60, 70, 80, 100,000 pounds per property transaction goes into solving the homelessness crisis. So those are the sorts of installing purpose in businesses that perhaps are traditionally soulless. Um, stock trading would probably be another one I target next. You know, businesses that make are existing models that make a lot of money, but ultimately that profit doesn't really go to do any good other than make rich people richer. So that's why I focus today on my investment uh, energy. So other than um, purpose, what other kind of characteristics or values do you look towards when investing in a business? It's, um, it's complicated because a lot of it for me is gut instinct, mm-hmm. which sounds like it's unscientific, but I actually think a lot of people have forgotten to listen to their gut. Like when we meet people, we actually have a feeling. Sometimes we suppress them for whatever reason. Yeah. But, you know, you put people, if you tune into that, so um, a lot for me is gut. Another element of it is their ability to learn and listen, but also have that strength to sometimes push back. Mm-hmm. So, you know, again, I'm quite personally an opinionated person and doesn't mean I'm right. And it doesn't mean I understand the person I'm investing's business 100%. So I think there's the clever way um, of kind of sometimes listening but also saying to someone hey Simon that's a good point but you're wrong because of this Um, or Simon that's a good point I'm going to change what I'm doing you know so you're looking for that I'm going to call it teachability Mm -hmm. but but another way of explaining it would be like a mutual respect that I think sometimes a lot of people don't have for each other especially investors I see that they sometimes look down at the people they're investing in Mm -hmm. and I hate that you know, I, I always try to build a friendship. I often see it as exactly that. You end up often working together for five, six, seven, eight years. It's like a marriage. Yeah. So when I invest in someone, I, I want to have that relationship. Ironically, something that's not talked about, and a lot of people think I'm crazy for including this in my criteria, but a good sense of humour. Yeah. You know, if you can't have a laugh. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've, I've had cases where businesses have gone horribly wrong. I still enjoyed the process yeah. because we had a laugh along the way. I know it sounds silly, like you can't, combine making money and laughing you know as if the two somehow don't go together yeah. but but yeah that's quite interesting you say that um because i have a friend of mine we probably speak about three times a week sometimes even every day and we just said if you don't laugh you'll go insane totally so it's just like totally. you have to you have to just laugh at the problems you're having laugh at the experience and just enjoy it whether it's good or bad basically 
Yeah, but if I'd said to PwC, buy my company, it'd be fine. You have such a laugh. <laughs> they would they would have laughed me out the boardroom, you know. But the, the, I, I think in real real in the real world, this is important. Yeah, amazing. And so, as a business owner, and for our listeners who are business owners as well, what would you say they should look out for when? when looking for investment from investors and also do you think every business needs kind of an investment or how would you know whether your business needs it how can you kind of make that decision what could guide them in, in a sense like is it best to just fully bootstrap or kind of get an investment if it's possible it, it's it's a hard question to answer with a one-off uh, piece of information I, th I think that the way I always explain it to people is well, I can say this as an investor myself. I think I always tell people if you it's better you do, if you don't need an investor mm. initially, especially at the beginning, because maybe you're trying to figure out who you are, you're trying to figure out what the business is, and an investor, whoever they are, will always come in often with a financial agenda. Mm. So, you know, I, I've I, I've talked to a lot of purpose-driven businesses, and sometimes they're like, "Oh, someone's offered us the money, and we're just going to take it." And I'm like, "But what?" When you make profit, for example, and you want that profit, I'm thinking of a company in particular I was talking to recently, and you want that profit to go into cleaning the oceans, which is part of your mission. But the shareholder says, no, no, I want profit. Give me that money. You know, your, your mission is going to get compromised if you've got the wrong investor. So in other words, you need that investor to be as excited about your mission mm -hmm. as they are about the business. And, and what you don't want is an investor to come in and corrupt you and to distract you. And so th there's recently a big case um, I I about a, a, a drinks brand that has been p pitching how ethical they are and how they care about the environment and so on. And they've just taken on a very famous investor, a £200 million investment. Mm. And the company that invested in them is very unethical mm. to the point where everyone knows that they're, you know, they're investing in oil companies and they're investing in you know, bad, what are considered bad uh, businesses. And so there's a big backlash amongst the consumer base. But my point being that, you know, money can corrupt sometimes. Yeah. That being said, and being positive about investment, if you get the right investor, the opposite is true. They can really power things up, especially if they care about your mission. But what I do say to a lot of people that I'm helping is, is try to build up your business without investment yeah. if you can. It's almost... I want to say a bit lazy sometimes just to say, you know what, I just need to raise money. Or people yeah. worse than saying they want to raise money, they won't even start until they've raise raised money. money. Yeah. And to me, that that is just an excuse. I think there's so many things you can do that cost nothing. Mm -hmm. Let's say starting a Facebook page, not that I like Facebook and want to promote them, but you know, starting a, a page, or Instagram page, whatever your business, these things don't cost any money. Yeah. Talking to a few people about it, maybe drawing up a prototype, writing out a business plan. These things don't cost money. They just take energy and effort. So many people won't do all of those things until they've got the money. So, like I said about my gardening company earlier, I could have easily said, oh, I've got this gardening company idea, pitched it to investors, gone and raised all this money, yeah. then bought the equipment, then did a brochure, and then a year later start knocking on people's doors. Or you can just knock on people's doors. And I say, if you can knock on people's doors and create a cash flow positive business, then you've got time to breathe and you've got time to figure out who you are and what you want from this business. Because the other thing I see when people take on investors is they get trapped in the business. Mm -hmm. And in reality, they're potentially working yeah. for that investor. Yeah. So they, they think that they're working for themselves. This is one of my issues with programs like Dragon's Den. Yeah. You know, sometimes that you know it's good TV maybe, but 40-50%, if someone comes in and buys 40-50% of your company and they're not working that business, you're working for them. Yeah. 
you know, th th that's the beginnings of your work for them. Is gone. So, so that 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 I warn people because you're it'll be okay at first. It's it's a bit like a job. A job when you first get it, you're really excited. Oh, great! I'm getting a regular salary. And over time, it gets more painful because the management change or the mission changes, the strategy changes, budgets get cut. People's jobs get more painful over time. Whereas when you're an entrepreneur, it's the other way around. It's really painful at the beginning, but if you can push through and get some success, it gets so much easier and so much more fun. Mm. Right, but you've got to make sure you don't accidentally create a job for yourself by getting money up front, which makes it easy. Yeah. But long term creates you pain because that monkey's going to be on your back five, six, seven years. For sure, for sure, that's amazing. And just the other side of the coin. So, for example, I would love to be an angel investor one day. How did you kind of come about? It? Was it when you had a bit of success and money to invest, or are there different routes like starting from the very beginning at a young age, or? Is it at a certain level that's when you're kind of looking to give him back or kind of widen your portfolio? Well, I started investing, like I mentioned earlier, a bit. I, when I started, I'm, again, I'm starting to age myself a little bit now, but th there was no angel investing and angel investment groups or mm. this, this whole, even entrepreneurship, frankly, was kind of like, oh, you can't get a job. When I told people I was an entrepreneur 20 years ago, people were like, oh, you can't get a job? You know, why would you not get a good job in a good brand? Mm. You know, why are you not working at Google? Mm. You know, even, even to recent times, entrepreneurship was not seen as this glamorous thing to do. These days, it's it's come up a few notches, which is great. But investing was the same. You know, I remember when I made my first investment, people were like, you know, you're going to lose all your money. Why would you do that? Put it into property. Why don't you just buy property? I'm like, property is boring. I get, I learn nothing buying a property. But if I invest in a business... I'm learning. I'm learning what they're doing, how they're doing it. They're teaching me. I'm teaching them. I'm a part of the process of making it work. Actually, my very first investments were in stocks and shares. Big mistake. I lost a lot of money doing that because I thought that was investing. But what I realized quite quickly was I'm not sitting in the boardroom. I invested in lastminute.com and you know I lost a lot of money in it. But it wasn't because I wasn't right about the idea of the business. But it was because I didn't understand in the boardroom how it works. I bought the shares when they listed they went up and internally in the boardroom, they decided to buy the company back themselves, drove the share price down. So me as a shareholder lost out. Yeah. They then bought it back cheap off the stock market, yeah. made it work as we all knew it would back then and put it back into the stock market and now it's worth a fortune. Mm -hmm. But as a shareholder, and this is a tricky terminology because I'm not really a shareholder. I'm some guy with a bit of paper. Equity holder is what you want to yeah. be. So I learned that the hard way that a shareholder buying stocks and shares is just gambling. I have no control. So then I realized it was equity ownership that was the key, yeah. owning equity in businesses. And I started doing that by simply meeting great companies. And, you know, you mentioned uh, when we were off, off air, I think, uh, talking about, you know, rating Netflix series and stuff like that. I actually invested in the guys who created Rotten Tomatoes. Oh, amazing. So, you know, th th those guys uh, uh, came to me with a business idea. And I just loved their energy and, and their ability and their, their thinking. And I just wanted to be a part of what they were doing. So, you know, so I invested in them. In fact, uh, Patrick Lee, he is in my podcast episode nine, talks about his story of building up Rotten Tomatoes. It's a pretty fascinating story. But the point I'm trying to make here is that, you know, when I, when I started out, I just liked the people. And I liked their idea, of course. But I have invested in people whose ideas have changed 20 times from the first idea that they pitched to me. Mm. And so I invest in the people first. And that's what I did. In the early days, a lot of people would come to my agency and say, hey, could you help us create a marketing campaign to get into Asia? Mm -hmm. 
know, where a third of the world of the pop population lives. And I'd say, yes, but you can't afford the core agency service, so let me invest, like I explained earlier. And that's how I got into it. And so, but I never saw it as angel investing. I just saw it as I don't want to be a service provider. Let's collaborate. Yeah. I'll be your partner in this. Yeah. I never described myself as an angel investor until later when it became uh, cool to do so. That's amazing. That's amazing. So yeah, you you mentioned the podcast, but you didn't mention the name. So where can people find you? Where can people find the podcast? And what that like, what else do you have in in store? Well, um, I'm sure you'll put the links to the podcast yeah, down the bottom, 100%. but I, I was being respectful to your podcast, oh, not yeah. pitching my own uh, <laughs> right. in the middle of it all. But, um, but yeah, my, my podcast is called The Good Luck Club. And it, so it, you know, it, it is it what it sense. says in the can, <laughs> you know. We are, we are talking about luck, mm -hmm. but we're also talking about how these people made it and the different ways you can go around uh, go about building a business and you know we're we're on episode 46 so we're, we're we're still new but we've got a very loyal following what i'm enjoying about building up the podcast is it's not just the podcast it's the community so what we do when we put the podcast out is we also say this is what you can do to help other entrepreneurs so we do a live event on wednesdays i think we're going to do a live after this maybe yeah um, where we do reach out to, to people and say this is what we're doing um, and this is the entrepreneur and this is what they're doing. Can you help them? So Simon Script can help them. The people that have come on my podcast show with their network and their relationships with brands, for example, they can help. But also the people listening, how can they help? And it can be as simple as going onto one of our entrepreneurs' social media and just clicking like. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to cost the listener anything. But trying to generate that support so that, yes, they're getting knowledge as a listener, but also hopefully they're contributing to the success of the next generation of entrepreneurs. Amazing. Amazing. That's so good. Just wanna Yeah, yeah. So before um we wrap up, we always have a word of the week um to kind of inspire our listeners. What's your what's your word of the week for them to take him going into this new week? Can I have two? Yeah of course. Don't want to break the rules. No, go on. <laughs> well I do really. Um I think purpose is an obvious one. And really more people it's not easy to find your purpose. I know it's a tough ask of people. I found my purpose later in life. I needed the experience, but you know, I basically loved going back and helping that 15-year-old me. Mm -hmm. I, I didn't know what I didn't know. I didn't have a father helping me. I didn't have a mother helping me. didn't have any money. I kind of like the idea of going back to that 15-year-old me. It turns out that most of the time they're 28-year-old me, but you know, helping that person, that me. But I needed to go through that pain and that experience before yeah. I could find that purpose and do what I do today. So sometimes that people need that experience first. I think, I'd love to leave people with the word um, be authentic. Mm. I think it's sometimes not leveraged enough. Yeah, I think I people are so busy trying to be something else. But if you can be authentic, you'll be happier. And actually, you know, the people that your tribe will connect to you more. So um, I've worked on it myself as well. It's not easy to be authentic because it means opening up and sharing pain and showing that you're vulnerable and, you know, you're not invincible, you're not perfect. And so, you know, but I think if people can be authentic, then I, I see a lot of happiness coming from people that are truly themselves. Amazing, amazing. I just want to say a big thank you on behalf of us, all our listeners, for welcoming us to your home, having us on the you coming on the podcast, sharing so much value. Like, we, we don't have conversations like this often, so we're just super grateful for you just opening up and sharing so much knowledge because it's definitely going to help us and our listeners kind of progress and like you said that goal of one million business owners you've definitely made an impact on this podcast as well so wonderful 
Well, if okay. any of your audience need any help to start a business or grow their business, then reach out. We'll, we'll do what we can to support. And where can they find you? So you can go to my personal website, which is simonsquib.com. Of course, for the Good Luck Club, which is goodluckpod.com. Of course, you can catch me on Instagram. Catch me on TikTok. Yeah, <laughs> it's been blowing up on TikTok lately. But um, you know, you can catch me on these different different channels. Whatever whatever channel you're on, you can reach out. Amazing, amazing. And there you have it, guys. So make sure you like, comment, subscribe. Um, and yeah, thank you for listening. Thank you.